We're at the intersection, a couple of corners southeast of the Imperial Palace, that's been synonymous with high-end retail and conspicuous consumption for over 100 years. We've got a building with a tower which has been advertising watches since the late 19th century. A department store which has been here since the early 20th. We've got a circular building now closed off which started as a dream centre in the 1960s. And we've got a building with a fretwork facade designed by grads from an art college in London which went up in 2016. That has Nissan selling cars on the first two floors. If you want to set up shop near here, you're going to have to pay 50 million Japanese yen or 320,000 British pounds for just one square meter of space. Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, we're trying to understand Imperial Tokyo, the way the city has served to build a nation and an empire in modern times, and the way both city and country have made use of the emperor. To do this, we're walking through and around the palace at the centre of the city. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this last episode, we're exploring the neighbourhoods to the east of the palace, where commoners set up shop in the early modern period, where the new state tried to build a Western-style town in the late 19th century, and where corporate headquarters, high-end hospitality and luxury shopping have clustered ever since. We're going to start next to the fountain in Hibiya Park, just south of the Imperial Palace, just east of the bureaucrats in Kasumigaseki. We'll meet you there. So here we are in Hibiya Park. Right in front of us, we've got the Grand Fountain. You can hear it bubbling away in the background. Beyond that, a sea of tall buildings. One of them suspended on stilts and a couple of them under construction. You can hear that too. What is this? Where are we? 500 years ago, even though we're not paddling in the fountain, our feet would have been wet. We'd have been in the inlet from Tokyo Bay, which we cannot see now. Those wetlands were reclaimed early in the 17th century as the Tokugawa built up the castle and the city around it. We heard about that in the first episode of this walk. Then in this area, you begin to get the mansions of the lords. Right here, we have two from the southwest, the far southwest of Japan. The Mori, who would take the lead in bringing down the state in the late 19th century. We're going to meet them in another episode and the Nabeshima, who were quite famous for their porcelain, which they were good at selling to Europeans. Then, in the late 19th century, this area is taken over by a two-faced state. 
Where we are now becomes a military parade ground, but just across the busy road in front of us, in the 1880s, the government builds the Roku Meikan, the Deer Cry Pavilion. It's a Western-style building by a British architect in which the government wants to entertain foreign guests. The name comes from an ode in the Book of Songs, a Chinese classic which extols hospitality and talks about celery, among other things. But the building fails to impress foreigners or to convince its Japanese audience. Pierre Lotti, a peddler of oriental fantasies in the late 19th century, compared the Rokumeikan to a mediocre casino in a French spa town and the European-style balls that were held there to monkey shows. More important, the building became a lightning rod for critique by Japanese conservatives. And it was supplanted in 1890 by a hotel that still stands on the other side of the road. The government's grand plans for the area around here come to nothing. We've heard about this in the previous episode. The ground here is too weak to support the buildings they want to build. And so in 1903, it becomes a park. Two years later, it also becomes ground zero for two days of citywide riots. The war between Russia and Japan has come to an end. They were fighting over their rival imperial ambitions in Korea and northeast China. Teddy Roosevelt has helped to broker a peace treaty in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, for which he gets the Nobel. But the Japanese people don't like the terms of it. They think it's too lenient to Russia. The police try to keep them out of this park and they anger the crowd who march towards the palace just to our north and then start to rampage targeting buildings associated with the government, the police, Russia and the United States. By the time order is finally restored, 17 people have been killed, 500 injured, 350 buildings throughout the city have been destroyed or damaged, including 70% of the police boxes. 2,000 were arrested. It isn't the end of the disorder. Soon enough, it's spreading to other cities. And for the next 13 years, there's a period of what's called Minshu Sojo, popular violence. There were nine riots in 13 years in Tokyo alone. As we heard at the end of the previous episode, beneath the placid facade of modern Japan, often domestic politics too turns quite violent. Recently, around here at least, things have been a bit quieter, due in part to the operations of corporate capital, which we'll be tracing in the rest of this episode, and which we can already see across the street. So we're going to leave the park now, but we're going to pause on this side of the street, beneath those towering buildings we mentioned at the start. So here we are on the edge of the street, the traffic is a little louder. Directly across from us, we've got the Imperial Hotel. This was first commissioned in the late 1880s. It's the thing that makes the Rokumeikan redundant. The first one of them was produced by a Japanese architect. This was at the request of the aristocracy, again, to cater to Western visitors. And the largest investor was actually the Imperial household. That one burned in 1922, just before the earthquake. But its replacement was already under construction, one of the great icons of modern architecture. It was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in a Maya revival style. It survived the earthquake while it was being built, but it did sink down over time into this swampy ground. 
It closed in 1967, though you can still see some bits of it in an outdoor architectural museum further west. The one we're looking at now opened in 1970, just in time for the Osaka Expo later that year. It's 50 years old, so there are plans to demolish this one too, to spend nearly 2 billion US dollars, and that one, the new one, will reopen in 2036. One of the reasons they're knocking it down is because there are better options. Just down the street, we can catch a glimpse of the Peninsula Hotel. That company was formed in 1866. They open a hotel in Hong Kong in 1922, and this one in 2007. It's the second best hotel in the world, according to some people, after the Mandarin Oriental, which is also in Tokyo. Older hotels like the Imperial are being challenged by integrated developments, which we'll see much more of in future walks. We have one here. Right across the street on our left, we've got the Tokyo Midtown Hibiya. It opened in 2018. It's the one suspended on a stilt. This one doesn't have a hotel, but it has a lot of high-end offices, as well as a lot of high-end retail. We're going to cross the street now and go straight down past the side of the Imperial Hotel, leading under the train tracks. Throughout his career, sociologist Shunya Yoshimi has explored the way in which cities always provide places for people to gather, to see and be seen. Here he is explaining how they've worked in Tokyo and how they've been transformed in modern times. Every big city has Sakariba. London has Piccadilly Circus and New York has Times Square. So those kind of areas can be called as Sakariba in Japanese. So people's gathering place. My idea about Sakariba is basically where people play different roles and different drama as ordinary life. The Sakariba in Edo was located in the fringe of this city, Asakusa, Shiba, Ryōgoku, and Ueno. Edo city was basically very traditional, so main area of the city, around the castle, uh, such kind of Sakariba was impossible because uh, all the behavior uh, of the ordinary people is so much strictly controlled. But after the modernization, that kind of the spatial logic has changed. Because after the late 19th century and 20th century, the most fashionable and most attractive Sakariba became Ginza. Ginza was basically near to Imperial Palace, and near to the center of the city. Because Sakariba, after the modernization, was strongly influenced by the idea of Western culture and modernity and more consumerism. So, uh, so, so that is a big structure change. So Sakariba became more and more, on the one hand, strongly influenced by the idea of modernity and globalism and Western culture. And on the other hand, uh, people gathered to this Sakariba from outside of the city. We find more Sakariba in our other walks in Tokyo, both the ones that were already here in the Edo period, in the commoners' capital, and the ones that emerged in the post-war period in Neo-Tokyo. So we're heading down a slightly quieter road now towards the train tracks, which we can see in the distance. On our left, we've got a theatre. On our right, we've got the Imperial Hotel. And then on our left, another theatre. This is the Takarazuka building. It's the Tokyo base for an all-female review company. 
It starts up in the suburbs of Osaka in 1913. It's the brainchild of a railway magnate. He puts family-friendly spectacle with attractive young women at the end of the line to get the passengers to ride his trains. He also wants them to buy homes which he's built along the way. And still today, the theatre company is a division of the railway company. To join the company, you have to do a two-year training. You then join one of five troops. Each troop has designated top stars, and the audience is 90% female. Right here, outside the theatre, hundreds of each troop's fans line up after performances in order of actress seniority. The Takarazuka is a place for on-stage subversion of the sexual social order and audience projection in a patriarchal society. We're continuing down this road now and we're going to go under the tracks which lead south from Tokyo Station. It's a busy one. There's an intra-urban line. There are two intercity lines. It's where the bullet train runs. That was built in 1964. Then it ran at 130. Now it has a top speed of 177 miles per hour. There are other train lines too. There's also just beyond the train tracks the Tokyo Expressway, a two-kilometer stretch of freeway which opened in 1959, built by a private company on top of the filled-in rivers. It was funded by rent from the tenants underneath, who we'll see soon. Now, though, it's mooted for decommissioning. It's got narrow lanes, it's got sharp curves. People don't like freeways leading through the middle of the city. You'll hear all these trains as we walk down the street. You'll probably hear the differences between them too. So we're heading down this street. Once we're under the tracks and under the freeway, we'll turn right. So we've just turned right under the freeway and we're now in Ginza. Already it's clear it's a different world along and beyond these tracks, suggesting the density that is characteristic of the city once you move further away from the palace. We've got cafes, we've got restaurants, we've got bars. Above those we've got office and commercial space. There are smaller plots here. It's a denser use of space. We're going to keep walking down this freeway to see this world unfold around us, down to where the freeway curves around one of these tight corners. We'll meet you there. So we're coming to the end of this street now by this strange building at the end, black with this huge curved pillar at the base. Looking up at it, we've got some modules hanging out of the pillar over our heads. This is the Shizuoka Press and Broadcasting Center. It was built by Kenzo Tange in 1967. We're going to hear much more about him in future walks. It's the first and last surviving expression of the architectural fashion of the 1960s, metabolism. This was a group of architects who thought that cities could develop organically by building this kind of thing, modular megastructures. Originally, the space between some of these modules, between the 13 offices, was meant to be filled in, but that doesn't happen. 
Another one of these metabolist buildings used to be just to our south, the Nakagin Capsule Tower, the most famous expression of this movement. That came down, though, last year in 2022. It was no longer fit for purpose. We're turning our back on the building now. We're not going straight ahead under the freeway. We're following it round as it curves to the left. We'll go down a couple of blocks and we'll take the next left. We've come down the street a couple of blocks now. Over on our right, the road leads under the freeway again. We've also got Hooters Ginza, which it claims makes you happy. But we're turning left here in front of the Ginza Grand Hotel. We're turning into Ginza proper now, and the money is going to come fast and furious. Over on our right, on the other side of the street ahead of us, we can already see Marugen. This is one of a number of buildings throughout Tokyo, concentrated largely here. These are bar buildings, tiny little bars stacked one on top of the other. They're all the property of a famous fixer, an entrepreneur called Kawamoto Genshiro. He assembled his portfolio in the 60s and 80s. He was arrested for tax evasion in 2013, but it took eight years to sentence him. He just went down. We're continuing down this street, Namikidori, tree-lined street, for a couple of blocks. So we've passed our first Marugen building, number 25. We've crossed over the street, where we can see another one, down to the right, number 21. And ahead of us, still yet another one, number 53. All of these are now largely unoccupied, dilapidated. They're going to be taken over soon. He's in prison, after all. And then on our left, an extraordinary new building. This went up in 2013. It's one of a number of buildings very close by, owned, occupied as well, by Shiseido, a famous cosmetics company. The interesting thing here, though, is that this was designed not by an architect, but by a contractor with this extraordinary interlinked lattice facade. We're continuing down the street. And just a little way ahead of us, now on our right, another extraordinary new building. This is Louis Vuitton, but it's only one of ten or more Louis Vuittons in the city. There are another three stores less than ten minutes away. For single office ladies in the 1980s, it made sense to put most of their salary into one luxury designer bag, and they're still popular to this day. This store opened in 2022 with this extraordinary watery facade by Jun Aoki. We've got blue at the bottom, rippling up to bronze at the top. We're here quite early in the morning, and it will continue to change color through the day. We're turning right at this corner by Louis Vuitton before we get to Versace. We'll leave that on our left. We've walked down this street a couple of blocks. We're turning right just past Barney's on our left, opposite Falconeri, before we get to the main road. This one more of a street for bars, again stacked on top of each other in tall, narrow buildings. These ones aren't owned by Marigan, so they're still in operation.
And before we get to the end of this street, just past Ginza 777, before we get to another striking building, small, with an orange corrugated facade, we're turning left down a tiny alley with red banners leading our way. And so at the end of this little alleyway, we can still hear the glass bottles clinking. There's a small shrine. It's to Inari, who we've met before in previous episodes of this walk, one of the 3,000 in Japan. This is tiny. It was possibly built by a 16th century military commander, and it still survives, stuck between these buildings. And it's much patronized, both by passers-by and by kabuki actors. The main theater is not too far away. So we've got two worlds, entertainment and drinking on the one hand with clinking bottles, a sacred space on the other. They coexist, and we'll see this again. At the end of the alley, we're turning right, and we'll be led out back onto the street. At the end of the alley, we're pausing, because across the street we have an extraordinary red ochre building. This is another Shiseido. There's yet another one on our side of the street. Shiseido was founded all the way back in 1872 by the former head pharmacist to the Japanese Imperial Navy. Nowadays, though, it's the fifth largest cosmetics company in the world. This building, its flagship, was opened in 2002. It's by Ricardo Bofil, another international architect making his reputation in Japan. We're going between these two Shiseido buildings now, and on the main street, we're turning left. We're now on Ginza's main drag, Ginza Dori. It's a busier street. On our right, we've got a lion beer hall. That goes all the way back to 1889. Just beyond that, we've got Christian Dior in a much more modern residence. On our left, we've got Uniqlo's flagship, and then opposite that, we've got the latest addition to the retail opportunities around here, Ginza 6. It opened in 2017 on the site of Ginza's first department store all the way back in 1924. This is by the Mori Building Company, and collaborators will hear much more about them. Its opening was attended by the Prime Minister, by the Governor of Tokyo, and by Mr. Arnaud, the richest man in the world still today, I believe. It provides, so it says, a six-star shopping experience. It has room for 241 stores. It includes Yves Saint Laurent, Vivian Westwood, as well as the flagship of Kenzo. It also has a no theatre and a rooftop garden. We're continuing down the street. We've continued down the street another couple of blocks through two construction sites. We've got Prada on our right, Ginza Core building, an entrance to the subway, and here we're going to pause. So, it's clear, the sober world of Nagatacho and Kasumigaseki, of the politicians and the bureaucrats, which we explored in the previous episode, gives way on this side of Hibiya Park to the wetter world of entertainment and consumption. We've now reached that world's epicenter, at this, the main intersection of Ginza. 
In the second half of this episode, we're going to peel back the layers and show how it's connected to the world of business just north of here. Now, though, we'll take a break. Welcome back. In the first half of this episode, we've seen how this area, Ginza, just south of the Imperial Palace, is a playground for eating and drinking, cruising and shopping. Now, we need to see how it became synonymous with luxury and how it's connected to the big businesses just to our north, where we'll end this episode and the walk. We're still at the main intersection of this district, Ginza. Originally, the district was the tip of a sandbar. It was formed from the deposits of the Sumida River, which we'll meet in our next walk. It was separated from the castle by an inlet. There was water just to our left. Then, as we know from a previous episode, in the early 17th century, the inlet is filled in, and so this district gets connected to the castle. And so the shogunate sets up a mint here, hence the name. Ginza, silver mint. There were other commoners here too. There were craftsmen, there was theater, and they're still here in 1870 after the shogunate has fallen. Here's a foreigner in that year. I passed through one street devoted to bureaus and cabinets, through another of folding screens, through another of dyers' shops with their odors and vats. At that time though, Ginza isn't as bustling as Nihonbashi and Kyobashi where we'll start the next walk. Things changed, though, in the late 19th century with a new government and two large fires. The district, Ginza, is rebuilt as a demonstration of modernity to the foreigners who are close by. It's built in brick, quite like Regent Street in London, with shops below and flats above. But brick doesn't work very well in the Japanese climate. It's damp, it's stuffy, it's vulnerable to mildew. And it doesn't even impress the foreigners. One of them says that you see here, size without majesty, individuality divorced from all dignity and simplicity, and convenience rather than fitness or sobriety. These are the salient characteristics of this structural hodgepodge. Inevitably, late 19th century European condescension. But slowly, hesitantly, you get the beginning of modern retail, catering to the elite not too far away up on the hills. In time, you also get Ginbura, cruising around the Ginza. Both of these trends, retail and cruising, are reinforced as the railway begins to shift things this way. We see an example of this period over the street. This is the Seiko Watchtower. Back in 1881, a 21-year-old Hattori Kintaro had opened a shop selling watches. In 1892, he buys a factory and forms Seiko. It means exquisite house. Then in 1894, he buys this site from a newspaper company and commissions a watchtower. He does really well. There's a 1910s boom, and so he makes plans for its replacement and dismantles that one in 1921. Two years later, the district is devastated by the earthquake, but soon it bounces back. You've got Tokyo Station, you've got the streetcars. The department stores start to arrive. The first one in 1924, now Ginza 6. Then Matsuya, just down the street. We can see it here in 1925. And finally, Mitsukoshi in 1930. We'll meet that too in the next walk. 
And then in 1932, the new Hattori building with the watchtower we can see in front of us. There are other things. There are coffee shops. There are theatres. There are modern boys and girls in the height of fashion. The Ginza is the model of modernity by the 1930s. Replicas crop up around the country until, of course, the war. When the Americans arrive in 1945, they requisition a lot of the buildings around here, including the watchtower, which has survived the firebombing at the end of the war. That becomes a military post-exchange. They give it back to the Japanese in 1952. And in the post-war period, Ginza continues to evolve. In the 60s, in the 70s, white-collar flight to the suburbs means young people go west to have their fun. We'll see this in another walk. But there's continuing demand from businesses around here. And so you get this strange circular building. This is the San Ai building. It's now shuttered. But it gets its start in 1963, just before the Tokyo Olympics. It's called a Dream Center. And it has a Nissan gallery on the ground floor, selling cars with all-female staff. They leave in 2009, and that building has had its day. But that's because the Ginza continues to bubble up. By the late 80s, there are crazy prices around here. It's less frothy now, but it's still up there. To buy a meter of space here for retail would cost you 50 million Japanese yen or 320,000 British pounds. You can compare that, kind of, to a flat in Grosvenor Square in London, which only costs 56,000 per meter squared. And as we can see, there's continuing redevelopment because there's continuing demand. On the last corner of this intersection, the most recent arrival, Ginza Place. Way back when, this was a newspaper company, then in 1911 a cafe, then in 1931 a beer hall. The site is still owned by Sapporo. Then in 2016 it was rebuilt by grads from an art college in London with their practice in Tokyo. The facade is made out of what they call traditional fretwork. This is Nissan Crossing, because Nissan has moved back on the first two floors. So let's leave the intersection. Let's turn left in front of this slightly strange police box. We're heading up the street in front of us towards the Gap building over on our right. So as we keep going up this street, we see more luxury brands, more statement buildings. Over on our right, we've got Gucci, we've got Vacheron Constantin. On our left, we've got Bottega Veneta with an incredible kind of tiled frontage, and they keep on coming. Over on our right, we've got Gap, maybe not a luxury brand, but a striking building with a blue backing for the Gap name. Crossing the road now, we've got Coach on our left, the entrance to the subway, the striking Hermes building with glass blocks on its front and a line of people waiting to go in. And then an empty lot where we're just going to pause. So we're pausing here in front of this building site, but it's a building site that's been made as beautiful as possible with flowers painted on the wall surrounding it. This is the site of an iconic store, which is no longer here, the Sony building. Went up in 1966, came down in 2017. There was a small pocket park here for three years during COVID, and the new building is gonna reopen in 2024. 
Once again, it'll probably be where people meet in Ginza. And directly across from that, another new construction. This is Tokyu Plaza. Went up in 2016, inspired by traditional cut glass. We're gonna meet Tokyu again in a future walk. But we're gonna keep going. We're gonna cross diagonally over and then under the freeway, aiming for the Lumine building on the far side. We've come out from under the freeway and we're branching right under a big Seiko clock through a passageway that leads through the Lumine building. As we come out from the Lumine building, it's clear we're moving into a different world. This is Yurakucho. Yurakucho is named after the warlord who built his mansion here early in the 17th century. We're aiming for the station right ahead of us. We've made our way down the side of the tracks and now we're going to turn left, opposite an entrance to the subway between a curry shop and a Starbucks. This will lead us through the station and out the other side. And as we come out from the other side, we've got Bic Camera, a huge electronic store on our left, but we're crossing the road to what is in fact a convention center on our right. As we walk into the plaza of this convention center, there's a door on our right, and we're gonna go down in here to see one of the great triumphs of contemporary Japanese architecture. This is Tokyo International Forum. Originally, it was a mansion for the Tosa clan. Then it became the former headquarters of the municipal government. They moved out in 1991 and relocated to Shinjuku. We'll meet them in a future walk. And what we see now was designed by Raphael Vignoli. It goes up in 1996 and it establishes his reputation. He goes on to build the walkie-talkie in London in 2015. We've talked about the walkie-talkie a lot in our London walks. But this is a multi-purpose exhibition centre. There are huge halls on either side of this plaza. So we want to descend the escalators in front of us into this extraordinary boat-shaped building, and we're going to come out up the other side.
One of the ways Tokyo International Forum is used is as a space for temporary art exhibitions. Nishino Sohei is a contemporary photographer based close to Tokyo who uses collage to assemble deeply personal maps of cities. Here, he shares how he does it. But there's not really a big difference between cities and the countryside, between Tokyo and Fuji. For you, by going to a place and moving around the place, you discover more about yourself. You become a clean sheet in a new place, so you have to go to a new place. In the city, at least, you have a base. <laughs> you start somewhere, you come back at the end of the day. Whereas in the countryside, you have to keep moving. To photograph Fuji, you have to go all the way around Fuji. There's a difference in method, which maybe becomes a difference in the artwork too. Our podcast on Tokyo will not be the last word on Tokyo. It's our map. Spaces like the Tokyo International Forum give us a chance to reflect, not just on Tokyo, but global cities more widely, and what we're doing with historicity. And as we ascend to the top of the elevator, we see a statue of a warrior. This is Ota Dokan. He was the original founder of Edo Castle, where we began this walk. So we're exiting the Tokyo International Forum now. We're going to cross the street in front of us, but we're aiming for the red brick building we can see over to our left. So we're now pausing on this corner. We're next to MUFG and we're looking across at this seemingly older red brick building on the other side of the street. We're in Marunouchi. We're still within the original enceinte of the castle and this was an area populated by the lords back in the day. But then the shogunate falls and the Meiji government, the new government, uses it for the army, for a barracks and for parade grounds until it sells it in 1890. This area is bought for 1.5 million Japanese yen, which doesn't sound like much today, by the brother of the founder and later the second head of Mitsubishi, now a household name. This area becomes known as Mitsubishi Gahara, the Mitsubishi Fields, and still today it remains their stronghold. We've got the bank behind us, it's Mitsubishi UFG Bank and looming over the red brick building, a huge new skyscraper. The low-slung red brick building itself is actually a recreation. This was the first Western-style office building in the district for the banking department of Mitsubishi. It was built back in 1894 by Josiah Conda, a government-hired architect, in a kind of Queen Anne style. But that original is torn down in 1968 when modernism is ruling the day until it's rebuilt at the beginning of the 21st century as heritage becomes a thing. It's not a functioning building, it's a museum, and it focuses on late 19th century art when the company came into existence. We're continuing down this street now, a few blocks. Soon we're going to see the plaza in front of Tokyo Station open out on our right, and that's where we're going to end this walk. Historians like Hidenobu Jinai 
argue that our story about Tokyo needs to start with the contrast between the military elite on the hilltops and the commoners in the lowlands. Here he is reminding us what areas like this looked like before the modern corporations took over and how they and their employees have turned Tokyo suburbs into modern versions of a familiar pattern. And along the one street in both sides, they created a local community between merchants and craftsmen. Merchants and craftsmen are uh, protagonists of urban life. Samurai, they only consumed. <laughs> they didn't produce. They didn't to participate to creative, uh, productive activity, only consumer. But of course, they had the role of administrator, control <laughs> of society. Outside was a suburban area for city of Edo. No? But uh, with this expansion, uh, they produced many, many high towns in modern Shitamachi. And uh, in 80s, the fourth Yamanote, this term was invented to give meaning, elegant meaning. This is for the commercializing uh, propaganda. Very chic, elegant, uh, residential area with garden. So, of course, Salariman's family lived there, where there were a lot of daimyo yashiki. There were a lot of very nice, beautiful residences with gate, uh, garden, but now we have many condominiums and sometimes also offices. So uh, their feeling of original Yamanote reduced, but we have new Yamanote in Setagaya. We find some recent examples of this fourth Yamanote in our walk Neo Tokyo. But first, let's close the loop in this walk and return near to where we started in front of the Imperial Palace. So here we are in the plaza in front of Tokyo Station where we're going to end this walk. We're a couple of hundred metres east of where we started the walk in the Imperial Palace Plaza. The station is old and looks it. In 1889, there's a plan to connect the two existing train stations in Tokyo. The first one to our south in Shinbashi, which goes down to Yokohama, and then one in Ueno. We'll meet that area in another walk. But this station takes time to come together. In 1896, the Diet decides to have a central station directly aligned with the palace, as we can see today. But the construction is still delayed by wars in 1894, in 1904, and the building only begins in 1908. It's designed by Tatsuno Kingo, and it opens in 1914. But what we're seeing today actually reopens in 2012 after a five-year refurbishment to get it back to its original design. It's only the fourth busiest station in the city in terms of number of passengers We'll see the busiest ones in another walk on the west side of Tokyo. But it is the busiest in terms of the number of trains. 4,000 pass through here every day. And around it, we see a conglomeration of tall buildings. Directly in front of us may be the two most important. On our left, looking back towards the Imperial Palace, the Maruno Uchi building, the icon of the district, if you like. The original was built in 1923, 
then replaced by this in 2002. 37 floors, 179 meters tall. But soon, it's outpaced by the building on its right, the Shin Marunouchi building, the new Marunouchi building, which goes up five years later in 2007. This one has 38 floors. It's 198 meters tall. It's the tallest building in the district. Political power always needs to gesture to the past, as we saw in the previous episode. As we're seeing here, corporate capital can use the past to its advantage, but it also has no problem tearing old things down and building new ones in their place. We'll see some of the same thing in our next walk, where we're going to explore commoner Tokyo, further away from the palace. But we'll also see those places where the past continues to resonate in the present. Even a city like Tokyo, which we often associate with the future, has a history which cannot be denied. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Yelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.